welcome to part nine of the Rooted Course. Today our subject is faith and doubt. As we start today, I want to refer your attention to something Jesus said after he has revealed himself to Thomas and the disciples in the upper room. He says these words, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet who have believed. So today we're, we're considering the nature of faith. And I think it's a subject we don't give enough attention to. We often talk about faith in the church, what it means to have faith. But I don't think we always define clearly enough what faith really is. Part of today's session might be a little bit technical and even philosophical, but please stay with me as I think at the end of the day these subjects are important and I think there's, there's merit in the way that I'm going to approach the subject. I think it is important also to have frank discussions about doubt because we as Christians do sometimes have doubts. And I think the more we understand about what faith is and what doubt is, we're in a better position to navigate those doubts and to, to move forward positively. So let's begin by considering what is faith. And here's my definition of what faith is. And I'm not using faith simply in a religious context. I'm, I'm using the word faith as we would use it in any context. My understanding is that having faith or faith is choosing to accept that something is true, though you do not have proof. Faith is, is choosing to accept that something is true, though you do not have absolute proof. That is, that is what faith is. And it's important to recognize that having faith, exercising faith, it is a decision. It is an act of the will. But I also want to stress that, that faith is, is still something that's based on evidence. Faith is, is based on, on evidence. Faith is not having faith in faith. And sometimes when we glibly talk about faith and trusting God, it, it, we, people can almost be talking about, well, have faith in faith. And that is definitely not what having faith is. There was, there's a story told of, a, of, a, of a, a child in Sunday school who was once asked, what is faith? And his reply was, faith is believing what you know isn't true. And uh, there's something in that little saying that, that is quite humorous. But, but that definitely is not what faith is. Faith is not believing in something that you know isn't true. And we're going to get into what faith is and the role that evidence plays in supporting that faith. But what is doubt? Doubt is choosing to believe that something is not true. That's what doubt is. It's, it's looking at a set of facts and then making a decision 
also based on faith that something is is not so, that it is not true. And it always amazes me that people can look at the exact same evidence and one person can come to the conclusion that they believe something is so and they have faith that it is so and another person can look at the exact same evidence and then conclude that something is not so and then choose to have doubt. It it is similar in some ways but then not in others to viewing a glass of water as being either half full or half empty. Uh, there's, There's a decision involved that is is apart from the facts at at hand. So let me just uh, begin also by saying that Christianity definitely is a faith. It, it is a faith. And we know from Hebrews 11 verse 6 where the writer says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So God in his wisdom has chosen not to prove himself to us, but for some or other reason he has decided that we have to have faith. And this verse here from Hebrews shows us that. I also want to be quick to add that that nobody can prove that Christianity is true. And and I believe that no amount of apologetics can ever take a person from zero to 100% conviction that Christianity is true. Uh, Christianity is a faith and it remains a faith. And we never get to a point where we no longer have to have faith. On the other hand, it can also be said that nobody can ever prove that Christianity is not true. Because if we could prove that Christianity was true, for example, then it would cease to be a faith. But it is a faith and God does require us to have faith and we as Christians shouldn't ever pretend otherwise. Let's consider now for a moment, what is the the opposite of having faith? What is the opposite of having faith? And many people would, would quickly answer that question and say, well, doubt is the opposite of faith. Faith and doubt are opposites. And, and I believe that that is not the case. And uh, let me give you a rather silly example that, that proves the point I'm, I'm wanting to make in just a moment. And, and here it is. You don't have to believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. You must be very bad at maths if you have to believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Because... Because we all know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. So that is not something that requires faith. That that is knowledge. We know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It doesn't require any faith. But if I were to tell you right now that the square root of 40 is 6.3245... 
Now, for most of us here, that is a statement you, you're not sure of. And so some of you might choose to believe it and, and others might choose to doubt it. Because by definition, you only need to have faith and to believe something when you don't know that it is true, when you are not absolutely certain. Another point I want to make is that faith and doubt always coexist. You will never find someone exercising faith without there being some measure of doubt. And, and you'll never find somebody exercising doubt or doubting something unless there's also a possibility, even a remote one, that something could be true. The moment you have to believe something, there's a chance that it might not be so. Because both faith and doubt deal with things that we are uncertain about, by definition. And I love this next point. Ironically, we can only doubt something if there's actually a chance that it might be true. If you know that 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 5, you don't have to doubt that. You know that it is wrong. Faith and doubt are ways in which we deal with things in life that, that we don't have certainty about. Faith and doubt are normal human responses to things we're not uncertain about. And so doubt isn't always a sin. I think there is a place in the Bible that tells us doubting is a sin. And we read in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12, it says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God. And we need to understand what's being spoken about here. There, there, there is a time when someone can be unbelieving, when even in the face of a huge amount of evidence and, and previous experience, you, you choose to, to, to no longer believe in God. That's what's being spoken about here in Hebrews 3 verse 12. See to it that nobody has a sinful, unbelieving heart. But simply wrestling with doubt as a Christian, having doubts about some things sometimes, uh, that doesn't make you a bad Christian. Biblical faith is not the same as having a psychological certainty about things, where you've so controlled your mind that you've been able to remove all kinds of doubt. And so I think we need to have a more mature understanding of what both having faith and doubting really entails. Now that we've got our definitions out of the way, I want to move into speaking about the, the, the history of knowing. In other words, how do we know what we know? 
The science of knowing things actually has a name. It's called epistemology. And epistemology deals with how we determine whether something is true or false. How do we gain knowledge? That's what epistemology is all about. And, and people have responded to the question of, well, how can you know something in many different ways? And I, I want to do a historical review because it's, it's fascinating. And actually look at about 2,000 years of, of history. It's a very simplistic overview of the history of epistemology. And uh, we're going to be looking at some great thinkers who've, who've almost been representative of, representative of their generation and, and their, their era, as it were. So the first person we, we're going to consider is Augustine. Augustine of, of Hippo, and he lived in the 4th century, and he said this rather well-known phrase. He said, I believe in order that I may know. I believe in order that I may know. So this is Augustine's epistemology. This is his method. He says, I believe, and it is through believing that I come to know. In other words, I accept Jesus as the cornerstone of my life, and then everything else fits into place. I need a little leap of faith. I, I believe something, perhaps something quite small at the beginning, and then after I've taken that step of faith, then I can know so much more. So Augustine's method could be summarized like this, that having faith is a way to understanding. I believe in order that I might understand. And before we dismiss this view of knowledge too quickly, let me just take you to what Jesus once said in John 7 verse 17. Jesus said this, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God. That's pretty profound. I mean, that's very similar to, to what Augustine's approach was. I believe so that I can understand. Jesus says, if you choose to do God's will, then you will find out that my teaching comes from God. So Jesus seems to, to be affirming this particular view. And then the next key thinker that we get to that I want to reference is Thomas Aquinas, a great Catholic theologian. And he said that you don't have to start with faith. You can start with, with logic and with reason, and you can work your way from, from, from reason to belief in God. He's really the guy that invented apologetics. He had great confidence that through thought and logic and, and reason, rationality, we could arrive at belief in God. After Thomas Aquinas, the next key thinker that I want to reference is that great mathematician, René Descartes. 
And, and his, math, his mathematical study influenced his faith and his epistemology. And his approach to knowing things was to begin by doubting everything. And, and Rene Descartes said the only way to be absolutely sure about something is to begin by doubting it first. And only if something stood up to being true, then you believe it. He was such a skeptic that he even doubted that he existed. Because he really didn't want to take anything for granted. And so Descartes was the one who came up with, again, the well-known phrase, I think, therefore, I am. So this was Descartes' way of getting going with his epistemology. He, he began by doubting everything, even his own existence. But his first logical step was, well, well I think, therefore, I am. And, and I must exist. And then from that platform, he went on to, to see what would, what would stand up as, as truly being true. And Descartes introduced to the world a brand new way of thinking. His contribution to philosophical thought was this, that you only believe something to be true if you're absolutely certain that it is true, otherwise you reject it. And this way of thinking gave birth in part to the Enlightenment and to the philosophies of rationalism and modernism, which is a system of knowledge based on doubt and skepticism, where your default position is that of doubt. And so this new way of thinking led to great scientific advance. It, it also led to many superstitions being cast aside, and that was a good thing. But it also brought new challenges to the church, this, this very rational approach to knowledge. This, this default position of doubting everything, of being skeptical of, of everything, even one's own existence. So we all understand the enlightenment and the great changes in thought that, that transpired in that tumultuous era. And the enlightenment then gave birth to what has been referred to as the modern era. And this is where it was believed that science and logic would bring about utopia. But what people discovered is that the, the modern way of thinking that was highly rational and was based in doubt did not bring about the utopia that everyone had hoped for. And think of the, the millions who died in the 20th century. Perhaps the most bloody century of all time. And, and, and much of this bloodshed happened in the most advanced nations. And so people gave up on modernism because people realized 
that this very rationalistic approach to life doesn't bring meaning, doesn't bring joy, doesn't bring utopia. And so people almost lost, lost faith in modernism. People lost faith in rationalism. And then we come to the era we're leaving now, and we're not sure what we're going to call what we're entering, but then came postmodernism. Postmodernism. And postmodernism is the era when people had given up on modernism. And here are some of the key ideas of postmodern thinking. It's the idea that it is impossible to know anything for certain. And there's almost a despair here. And this was something bequeathed to us by Descartes. This idea that, uh, you know, the default position must be, must be doubt. And this is a key part of postmodern thinking. That we can't really know anything for sure. That every idea and thought has a context. And that idea and thought is only true in a, a very specific context. That we are not neutral in our pursuit of knowledge. That we're all biased by our feelings and our experiences. And that people in power are defining the world as it suits them. And in postmodernism, we have this idea that there's no such thing as objectivity, that everything has become subjective. And people almost gave up a little bit on science because we realized when we discovered quantum physics that even some of the things that Newton had discovered no longer were true or applied in a different context. So we discovered that some of these precious truths and scientific facts that we believed were actually no longer always true. We discovered in the postmodern world that we're all living by faith. And there's a recognition today that even science is a faith-based enterprise. That there's so much scientific knowledge in the world today that if you're working in a particular field, you have to accept by faith what other scientists are telling you. And so the postmodern world has rejected the idea that there is such a thing as truth and the truth is knowable. For the postmodern person, all truth is just relative. What is true for you might not be true for me. In a very real sense, the postmodernists have given up on their ability to know truth. And this has both its strengths and weaknesses. It means that the Christian, that the person who believes in the revelation of the Bible, is on as strong a footing as the person that wants to base, base their beliefs on their feelings or, or on their, their reasoning. A century ago, truth was very important to people. But now, sadly, everybody wants to divine truth for themselves. 
And many people even live with contradictory truths. So how can we know truth? What is our answer to this as Christians? We finished with the historical overview of epistemology, by the way. So how as Christians can we know truth? Well, there are different ways to to discover truth. There, there is pure reason, Descartes' way. I think, therefore I am. One plus one equals two. You can also discover truth through scientific experimentation. You can, you can get a hunch about something, you can create a hypothesis, and then you can test that hypothesis to see if it holds up. There's another way in which we can learn truth. And this is by having someone tell it to us. And this is how we grow up in life. Much of what we know, we simply know it because someone else has told it to us. And there is a term for truth that is simply revealed. It's called revelation. That is a way of 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 receiving truth apart from working it out for yourself. And and as Christians, it is very important that we accept the validity of revelation as a means of gaining truth. And I will not accept the, the atheist's argument that revelation is an unacceptable way to gain truth. Because in our everyday lives, we gain much truth this way. Think of two people who have fallen in love with each other. They spend hours talking to each other. They're passing on information, one to the other, that the other would have no way of knowing. So so in life, it is valid to say that there is a form of knowledge acquisition that comes through revelation. And so as Christians, when we say that we believe God has revealed himself to humanity through the prophets, ultimately in the person of Jesus, and after Jesus recorded in the scriptures that were inspired of God, when as Christians we say we believe that God has spoken and that he has revealed truth to us, that must be seen as an acceptable form of gaining knowledge. I'm not saying I'm proving my point. That would be circular reasoning. But we do all need to acknowledge that gaining information through revelation is an acceptable way to do it. It it isn't just the scientific method that is allowed. In everyday life, we accept the validity of revealed truth. None of us lives in this world by the laws of mathematics and scientists in their quest for absolute certainty. It is a standard that is fitting for science, but it is, it is, it is the wrong standard to bring to life and to faith, to religion. There are many things in this life that are true and that cannot be proven. 
And so when somebody says, well, how can you prove that Christianity is true? And I won't become a Christian until you prove it. That is an unreasonable expectation. When it comes to living our lives, there's, a, there's another silly little illustration that I think makes a good point. And I want you to imagine a, a, a hiker who, who slips down a cliff on a mountain, slips down a mountain face, and manages to grab onto uh, a shrub growing out of the side of the mountain. And, and you're, you're holding onto that, that shrub, but, but sadly, you can, you can see that it's coming loose. And you know that that shrub is not going to hold you for another two minutes. And you've got a choice to make. If you stay as you are, you're going to die and you're going to fall down the cliff. And as you, as you panic and as you look around, you see there's a bush up to your left and you see there's a, a bush or a rocky outcrop up to your right. And you have a choice to make. Are you going to grab that handhold or that handhold? Even though it's rock, maybe it's going to crack off. And I think this is the position that we find ourselves in in life. We don't have the luxury to just believe nothing. We're all in a position where through circumstances, we're actually forced to make some choices about our lives. We can't just go through life saying, well, I'm not going to make a decision about Faith, what I'm going to put my hope in, what I'm going to put my trust in. All of us are in a situation where we do have to make choices. And even if you decide not to make a choice, well, that too is a choice. It's a choice to do nothing. All of us live our lives believing in something. It might be intentional or unintentional, but all of us have exercised faith. None of us know for sure what is true. All of us are making decisions positively to either believe certain things or to doubt certain things. We're like that hiker hanging from that shrub. We have to make decisions in life about what we're going to do. Are you an agnostic? One who would say, well, I I don't know enough to say whether there is a God or not. Are you an atheist? Are you a humanist? You believe that the person is the, 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 the one who defines what is true. Are you a materialist, a natural? Do you believe in naturalism, pantheism, polytheism, animism? Whatever it is, these are all choices. These are all belief systems. No one is exempted from having to have faith. Many people are familiar with Richard Dawkins, the professor, uh, because he has made it part of his mission in life to promote atheism uh, and quite aggressively at at points in his life too, uh, so much so that he wanted to put out adverts on, on buses in London, advertising that people could relax because there was no God. 
And uh, in, in 2012, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, uh, conducted an interview with, with Richard Dawkins. He also wrote the book, by the way, The God Delusion. But in that, in that meeting, the world, one of the world's most famous atheists, he, he had to admit, and he, he gladly did admit, that he is not 100% sure that God doesn't exist. And of course, that's quite, a, that's quite an acknowledgement from the world's perhaps most famous atheist, that even he is not 100% sure that God does not exist. When pushed further in the interview, he, he, he would give the, his belief in atheism 6.9 out of 7 in terms of how sure he is. But this just also goes to show that even as, as probably the world's leading atheist right now, even he is not 100% sure of, of his belief that God does not exist. He too has some doubts about his beliefs. I want to get now to some biblical passages about faith. So far we've been very philosophical and, and uh, I think it has been important to just get a, a really good grasp of, of what faith and doubt is. But let's go to the Bible now and here are some scriptures that talk about faith and doubt. Well, Hebrews chapter 11 is, is a passage all about faith. And we we're told there that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's a certainty born of faith. And the, the words are being used in a, in a Christian context. Because faith does lead to, to having a certainty. But it is a certainty that we have by faith. We can never get away from having to have faith. Hebrews 11 goes on. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Creation is something we, we have to accept by faith. Even though it also makes rational and scientific sense. Verse 6 of Hebrews 11 reminds us, without faith it is impossible to please God. So as Christians we're never going to get away from having to have faith. That might make some of us feel uncomfortable, but it is the truth of the situation. Our next passage is John chapter 20, where I think there's a lesson about faith. John chapter 20 um, Someone, oh, oh wait, this is where, where Thomas is told by the other disciples that they have seen Jesus and, and now they, they're strengthened in their faith because they'd had a lot of doubts. Uh, but they've seen Jesus, but Thomas hasn't. And then Thomas says to the other disciples, he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side. I will not believe it. So Descartes would have been proud of, of doubting Thomas, because his default position is, is one of doubt. 
His, his closest friends might say, we've seen Jesus, he's alive and well. But Thomas has that rational, logical, scientific mindset. And he says, unless I see proof, I will not believe. And it's not just any old proof he wants. He, he, he's got quite high standards here. He says, I must put my finger where the nails were. That's not good enough. I must put my hand into his side. I will not believe it until I see, is what Thomas is saying. And it's a week later when Thomas is with the disciples and Jesus shows up. And Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, put your fingers, put your fingers here. Put, see my, my side. Stop doubting and believe. These words are so important, this phrase. Thomas, here's the proof. Here's the proof that you're seeking. Now stop doubting. And believe. There are two actions that Jesus tells Thomas to perform. The first is to stop doubting. Because doubting is something you do. It's not something that just happens to you. Doubting is an action. It's a decision. And so Jesus says stop doubting. And believe. Having faith is also not just something that happens to you. It's, it's a choice. Although I do want to acknowledge that faith does come more easily to some people than others. It can depend on, on our upbringing. Some people are more gullible than others. Some people are quick to believe things. Others are super skeptical about things even that are very obviously true. So I think our personality and our upbringing does play a role. And perhaps Thomas uh, was more of a negative doubting type of person. But uh, Jesus, Jesus accepts Thomas and, and, and helps him overcome his, his doubts. And then Jesus says this, this great saying that I, that I began tonight's session with. Because you've seen me, because you've got proof, you believe Thomas. But blessed are those who have not seen who don't have proof, and yet who have believed. And this is a dynamic of having faith. We are those who, who have not seen. I haven't seen the resurrected Jesus with my own eyes. There is evidence that causes me to have faith. But, but I am one, and you may be two, one who has to believe without seeing. And we are blessed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, John goes on to write, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. Like I said earlier, faith isn't faith in faith, and nor is it faith in, in what you know isn't true. Faith is built on, on, on facts. And so John says here, he has written his gospel, the gospel of John. He's included stories and information about Jesus so that we may believe. There's another great 
Bible passage that deals with the subject of faith. Let's look at it now. It's Mark chapter 9. And here's a desperate father who, who has a, a son who's not doing it all well. And, and he asks Jesus for help. And Jesus says, do you really think I can help you? And then the man says these words, I do believe, help my unbelief. This, this is amazing stuff. Here is a person asking for, for Jesus' help. Mark chapter 9. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I think this is a very profound sentence. Because it shows in a person the existence of both faith and doubt. Because faith and doubt always exist when we're unsure about something. They just exist in different percentages. Perhaps for, for an atheist, you're 99% sure there is no God. But 1% you think maybe there is. For a Christian, maybe you're, you're, we're 99% sure that God is real. But there's that 1% niggle where we're unsure. And so we're all like the man in the story. All of us can probably say, God, I believe. I do have faith. But, but help me in my unbelief. I, I can relate so well to this man. That the presence of real faith doesn't mean that real doubt won't be present. Doubt doesn't nullify true faith. I think it's just part of the faith equation. Maybe that's what Jesus meant when he said all you need is faith the size of a mustard seed, which was the smallest seed they knew about. You don't need much of it, faith, just a little bit of the real thing. I do believe Help me in my unbelief. The next passage I want us to look at is Luke chapter 5. And it is a, it's a fascinating passage and it's a little bit complicated, but this is a complicated subject. And what I want to do here is, is to compare how Zechariah and how Mary both respond to a revelation that they receive. And uh, perhaps it'll be best if you read this passage yourself. So what you need to read would be Luke 5, verses 1 and to 38. That's where all this, this content is found, and the Bible verses are, are in the notes. But Zechariah, he is, he is serving in the temple, and he becomes the father of John the Baptist. And an angel appears to him and says, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer's been heard, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. And the angel goes on to say a whole lot more things 
to Zechariah. And in verse 18, Zechariah chooses to express doubt. And he says to the angel, how can I be sure of this? Again, Descartes would have been proud of Zechariah to start off on zero, to start off with the default of doubt. And so even though he's in the temple serving God, and an angel has delivered him a wonderful message about having a son in his old age, and about how great his son is going to be, he's going to change the world, his response is actually, but how can I be sure of this? He's viewing the glass of water as half full. He's, he's choosing actually to, to focus on, on his doubts. How can I be sure of this? And we know that his response is not good and is not right. Because God, God disciplines him for that. And he's, he's struck dumb. He's unable to speak. And the angel says, because you did not believe my words, all of this is, is going to come true. And there, there was a, a punishment associated with Zechariah's lack of faith. And I want to now juxtapose the story of Zechariah with the story of the Virgin Mary. Because she's a, a, young, a young woman, I believe probably less than 15 years of age. And, and the angel Gabriel comes to, to Mary and also tells her an amazing story about what God is going to do. And I want us to notice how, how she responds. The angel says, you're going to be with child and give birth to a son. And Mary's response is, how will this be? Not how can I be sure that what you're saying is true. That was a negative response, a, a doubting response, a sinful, unbelieving response. Mary's also got questions. She's also a little bit bewildered about what she's heard. But her response is, verse 34, how will this be? I'm, I'm confused. I, I don't understand. Her response is not, how can I be sure that what you're saying is true? And so Mary Errs on the side of having faith. She sees the, the glasses being half full. She, she has a positive response to, to the information that she receives. And finally, Mary's response is, may it be to me as you have said. That's a faith response right there. And I think this is a, a great passage in that it, it illustrates for us Two individuals having quite a similar experience, but interpreting that experience very differently. One responding with doubt, Zechariah, and another responding with faith, Mary. And if you actually compare the differences in their personalities and, and life experience, you would have expected Mary to be the one to have doubts. Zechariah is this, this old man who's walked with God for years. He's, he's a priest. He's a, he's a servant of God. But he's the one that, that struggles to believe what he's being told. 
Mary, who's, who's walked with God for a far shorter period of time, her response is, is, is a wonderful one. And she has faith, whereas Zechariah does not. And what I find interesting about, about life and about faith is that often two different people can see the exact same facts before them. Two people can, can see the same evidence and yet come to a different conclusion. One person will choose to believe and another person will choose to doubt. And it would seem that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Some or other how God has made having faith as the determining factor as whether we can have a relationship with him or not. I once heard a person say to me that they would become a Christian if they were 100% sure that it was all true. And my response to them was this, that if they're going to wait until they're 100% sure it's true, they're never going to have that level of certainty. It, it is a myth. It is a false notion to think that faith can be like that. Even faith in God. And I sometimes shock people when as a minister I say, I don't know that Jesus is the Son of God. It's something rather that I choose to believe. And that is what our faith is. We do not have absolute certainty. We do not have 100% proof that the gospel is true. But all of us have to live by faith. All of us have to make decisions in this world. But let me hasten to say, I am convinced that there is a God. And I am convinced that there was a man called Jesus who was God in, in human form. And I believe in the scriptures that they are God-breathed. And this is upon what I base my faith. So I hope what I've shared with you today is, has helped you to gain a, a richer and a more honest understanding of what it means to have faith. And also the role that doubt plays in the Christian faith. You're not a bad Christian if you, if you sometimes have doubts or if you lack 100% certainty about, about your faith. This is normal and we need to, to be able to say, I do believe. Lord, help me with my unbelief. We also need to be those who recognize that blessed are those who believe without seeing. And that is who we are.